The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. The word grace is in the title of each of the three main hymns we sing today. It's definitely a big part of what I want to bring to you this morning. I'm going to read a preliminary text to our main text in Philippians 2.12. The main text I'll speak on here in Philippians is a very short one, and I want to have you see the parallelism of something just a few pages before in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is the book immediately before Philippians. should be easy for you to find it there and just turn back a couple pages. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and I think you'll come to see how the same concept is being supported by Paul there as what we will bring out from Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Even though the word grace doesn't occur in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, It is what the text is talking about. Listen first to Ephesians. Here's Paul writing, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, And following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, especially the latter part of that text really parallels what Paul wrote to another congregation in Philippi, Philippians, our main text today, 2, 12, and 13, this short passage. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. May God bless His Word as we consider it and hear it and apply it today. From early childhood to halfway through my college years, I was 
a member of an excellent church. The pastor is one of the finest pastors I've ever known in my life, a man whom I still admire in his late 80s. He preached the Bible. He modeled true Christ-likeness. I heard the gospel of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ in that church, and God touched my life and the lives of most members of my family and drew us to faith through that ministry. I owe a very tremendous debt of gratitude to the faithful ministry of that evangelical church in upstate New York. And yet it's interesting, and I can say it with with certainly no rancor, no critical or judgmental spirit, but if I lived in that community and I were not myself a pastor of a church and needed a place to worship, I wouldn't be worshiping in that church today. You might wonder why. That seems very strange if I'm so grateful. Well, it's because long ago, God led me and began to shape me to be persuaded of the biblical outlook of what we call the Reformed faith. Many, as I was telling the new members class this morning, also call it Calvinism. Those are labels I'm happy to wear. I don't always find labels so useful because different people understand them different ways. But the church of my youth is one that stands somewhat at the opposite end of the spectrum of doctrinal considerations, which would put their primary emphasis on what is classically known as Arminianism. The emphasis that looks more at what man must do and how man must respond and and at least emphasizes that more than God's initiatives and God's great initiative to us in, in grace. Now, people of the Reformed faith persuasion and people of the Arminian persuasion are both believers in Jesus Christ if they believe the gospel. Let's make no mistake about that whatsoever. I would not stand in this pulpit and say, my wonderful Arminian brother Billy Graham is not a Christian. How could I say such a stupid thing? But we certainly approach the Bible with a different perspective, and we we see it saying different things. And as I said, that Arminian view tends to promote the will of man and the effort of man in response to God, not, of course, omitting the greatness of God, but it's where the emphasis is. Through my youth, that emphasis was put upon me in a, in a heavy way, in a lot of different ways, and some were not so good, actually. I was constantly being challenged to be truly dedicated, truly committed. Are you on fire for Christ? I remember an old gospel song, is you're all on the altar of sacrifice laid. Some of you surely remember that one from long ago. And continually, the emphasis was on how am I committing myself? Come forward in an altar call to rededicate your life to the Lord. Every time they they pulled that one, I thought I ought to be trotting down the aisle because I knew my life was, was not adequate and I could see my sin and I knew I was not everything God could wish me to be. And so there was doubt and there was guilt and did I measure up? And, and even the assurance of salvation was a subject for me right through my teens until I, I could see that it was assured by what Christ had done, not how I had reacted. Many of you have told me similar stories and testimonies of, of being in these types of churches in your past. But after a long journey, I came to see that the predominant emphasis of the Scripture is upon the greatness of God and the grace of God. 
the initiatives of God in reaching for man rather than man reaching for him. That God was the one in his sovereignty who planned all things and executed all things. And so I'm convinced that I must stand with those who would, as I say, wear that label, reformed faith, if you will, Calvinism, if you will. But I'm just not always sure the labels are real helpful. I've come to see that the work of God precedes everything that man can possibly do. And so we read the Scriptures, and we read them in a God-centered way rather than a man-centered way. We, we come with Paul to that doxology he reached by the end of Romans 11, verse 36, and said just he must have been on tiptoes with his arms. I don't think Paul was a charismatic, but he had his hands raised in the air, I believe, when he said, from him, through him, unto him be all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And that's the way we read the Scriptures today. Now, we've progressed in our study of Philippians to come to what I regard as a very master text, a text I would urge you strongly to memorize. Philippians 2, 12, and 13, it's not a hard text. It doesn't have any $4 words in it that you can't pronounce. It's simple English. But if you would learn this text and learn the key that is there, I think you would see the solution to an ages-old paradox Whenever we ask as Christians, well, how much is my effort and and where is God's effort? Where's God's work or my work? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, in the circumstantial sense, in the first century, Paul was saying to his friends in Philippi, you might have been depending a little bit heavily on me. I'm the apostle who started your church. You knew me as the one on whom you leaned for all the answers from the Word of God, and I might die soon. He's told them that. I might not be with you much longer. You need to go on in your faith. You need to see God working your faith out and so that you will be growing, and you will have to do it without me, but you'll have the resources of God undergirding you and going ahead of you in all things. You need to exert yourselves to lay hold on all that God has done for you through Christ, is what he was telling these people. I truly believe these two verses will give you guidance. They give us this theme for the message today. I believe the theme of the text can be stated in one sentence. Because God has sacrificially worked for us in Christ, Man is able to work in a response of faith to, for God or to God. In other words, God's grace always acts first and calls us to respond, enables us to respond, even motivating our will and empowering our faith. So we're going to take on these two phrases in two main points. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act. And the more I thought about this message, I thought I'm going to do something that might disconcert you a little bit and deal with the second phrase first and then go to the first phrase. So I'm looking at verse 13 first, and then I'll go back to verse 12. The first is this. It is God who works in you both to will and to act. In verse 13 here of Philippians 2, we have the wonder of God's grace as the master key of salvation. It's such an important statement. 
for it is God who works in you both to will and to act. Surely you can agree that if I as a human being and the Creator God are both working, and somehow you think of us working side by side, you could not possibly think of us as equals in doing any work, could you? The great God who created the universe by the word of His power and me? We're certainly not equals. I remember years ago when I was maybe six or seven and my dad would work in his workshop. He was an amateur woodworker, not a great furniture maker or anything, but he would make things like a spice cabinet or something for a Christmas gift for my mom. And uh, so he'd be down there in the workshop. And of course, I wanted to be where dad was. And dad was smart enough to take a few scrap boards and some nails and a hammer and a small saw that wasn't too sharp. And actually, the non-sharp saws are more dangerous. But anyway, he gave me a little saw and he let me imitate him, hammer the boards together, you know, like I was making a spice cabinet, although I don't think anybody would have wanted the product of my work. We weren't working as equals, but I was imitating, I was responding to what my dad was doing. I would extend the illustration this way. What if there were two men in a room, each one with a violin and a violin bow in hand? And one of those men is the great virtuoso Itzhak Perlman. The other one is me. And someone says, let's see what you can each do with a violin. Now, I want to guarantee you one thing. We both are going to be able to bring you to tears. (laughs) I, when I apply the bow to the violin, will bring you to tears. They will be tears of horror and sorrow, and you will want to flee the room. Itzhak Perlman will bring you to tears of joy and rapture when he plays that instrument as a great master that he is with sweet music. You see, two workmen are not the same. How would we ever say if we are working and God is working, it's equal work? Or it's a 50-50 proposition like some want to say. Some say, well, you know, we don't exactly read this in Scripture, but they would imply, you know, God helps them who help themselves. Uh, I reach towards God, he reaches towards me, and maybe our hands meet in the middle or something like that. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical. By the way, God helps them who helps themselves is not in the Bible. I think it might have come from Benjamin Franklin, but it didn't come from the Bible. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He has just finished this passage, 2, 5 through 11 telling us of the work of God in Christ, how from the heights of heaven the divine Son has come down, condescended, gone all the way to die on a cross, and then has been lifted by the Father back to his throne of lordship. What we're reading now that begins with a therefore in verse 12 isn't unrelated to that. It's as though Paul is saying, look, in light of the work God has done, think of it, the astounding work that he did in salvation and in the gospel You need to take hold of that and respond to it. Now, I read for you from Ephesians 2 because I especially wanted you to hear again the familiar words from the later verses there, 2, 2, uh, 8 through 10. Let me just remind you of that. It says, by grace, God's undeserved initiative, by grace, you are saved through faith, and that faith is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see the relationship? There can't be any question here about whose work is greater or whose work is prior to the other. God worked in Christ by grace. He even gave us the faith to respond to him. But he expects us to do the works of faith and obedience and trust and worship and prayer and all these things in response to him. I used to see, oh, this goes back a lot of years. I I can't even remember when it was popular, but many of you can remember days when uh, there would be bumper stickers on cars. Maybe you had one. I'm probably going to step on somebody's toe. Uh, the bumper sticker used to say, God is my co-pilot. Remember that? People would be driving along. I don't know what comfort that was supposed to give you if you were driving behind that person, but God is my co-pilot. Well, to me, I wouldn't use that bumper sticker because I would be announcing to the world that I was an Arminian, that I didn't believe the Reformed faith. What am I saying? What's a co-pilot? A co-pilot is in the second position in the cockpit, right? The assistant. He knows how to land the plane and and take off. He has to do that or he wouldn't be a co-pilot, but he doesn't have the primary position. Ordinarily, he's not in control of the flight. So what's that person saying? God assists me. God helps me out. God is there to take over if my resources somehow break down, but he's the co-pilot. No, thank you. I don't want that bumper sticker. If they have God is my pilot bumper stickers, I'll take one. And that's what the Reformed faith says. God is the pilot. It's God's work that is supreme. God is in control of all things, of of history and destiny and, and my little life. And what I do is respond to his initiatives that do great work and then look for a response from me. And our passage even says, look at how extensive this work is. It extends to, verse 13 says, my will as well as my actions. Now we know that you don't do anything in this world except that you choose to do it. You act upon a choice and that will of yours is kind of mysterious, all the influences that make you want to do a certain thing and not do other things. This is saying God even acts upon your will to make you desire to do things that he wants as well as giving you the strength, the new nature, the new mind, the new heart to respond to him. So there isn't any question that Philippians 2.13 is talking about God's work first, surpassing mine in greatness and glory and power He is even accountable for me being willing to do things. Now, some of you know I'm I'm dancing right close to the edge of a very great subject called the doctrine of election, and I'm not going to try to solve that one for you today. But but here it is, though, as it tells us that even as we originally in salvation responded in faith, God was in that, going before it. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one comes to me in faith unless the Father who sent me draws that person. Now, there's, there are deep mysteries there and, and subjects that are debated that I don't intend to go into today. 
But I would think we could see the statement here that's so clear that it is the work of God that takes precedence over and overrules even our choices as well as our actual actions. Now then, we can go back to verse 12. Remember, I'm doing this in reverse order. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Once I was teaching a class and I said, notice that there's no period after work out your, you know, it's not like that's an isolated verse. Go, you go work it out, period. One lady raised her hand and said, my Bible has a period after that. <laughs> I said, oh, really? And I had to look at her translation. Well, I have to tell you the, the punctuation of English Bible translations is not inspired. The Greek text does not have that kind of punctuation, so it was put in there by a translator. That's not a correct way. It's not a sentence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. It's one sentence. And so we come in the second point to say that, to see what the proper place is for human endeavor in the Christian life. Now, you probably know that most man-made religions in the world have our works, our merits, our good deeds, whatever you want to call them, in a place where they do something to achieve salvation. You know, certainly one major religion that you'd fit right in if you said, my works bring me to God is Islam. All you have to do to be a Muslim is say, Allah alone is God, and perform certain Rituals and pray regularly, it's really easy to convert to Islam, very easy. Just, you just have to say certain things and start doing certain things. And those deeds, the Muslim hopes, will make Allah happy. And he's never quite certain whether they will or not, but he hopes they will. Now, the tragedy is there are Christians who think that's the way Christianity works too. But would you notice, please, that the little prepositions of the Bible actually do matter, Paul didn't tell the Philippians to work at their salvation. He didn't say, work for your salvation. He said, work it out. It's in you. Now I'm asking you to take it and apply it to daily decisions and daily situations as you live before God. I'm asking you to engage in the lifelong struggle of walking in new life, to pray, to worship, to witness, to serve, to do all these things and do them with energy and do them with zeal and do them constantly, persevering to the end of your days. And yet, know that you can do them because God was first working in you, you see. His work is always prior. I would remind you of Jesus' miracle in John 5, 8, and 9, that miracle where the paralyzed man was laying by the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. There was a belief based on a legend that an angel would stir up the waters of the pool and the first person who got in the waters would be healed. By the way, the Bible doesn't teach us that that actually happened. It says that's what they thought would happen and that's why they were there. Well, Jesus came by, saw this man laying on his mat where he had languished for a long time. Do you want to be healed? What do you think his answer was? Of course I want to be healed. What do you think I'm doing here? And Jesus said, fine, take up your mat and walk. And it says the man took up his mat and he walked. Now, does anyone imagine that the work, the human work of standing up and picking up the mat and walking away was done in the man's own strength? 
Not if you believe the supernatural character of the Bible. It's, it's telling us the power of Jesus Christ healed that man, and in that power of his healed body and healed legs, he stood up and he walked. In other words, God worked and the man responded. Exactly what I'm talking about here. A trusting response. Now, there's so many Christians who would say, well, sure, salvation is by grace. Of course it is. Of course, God's gift of Christ at the cross was an unmerited gift, and we're saved by his blood and by the righteousness of Jesus and all that. And yet then, you see, once they say, okay, we're saved by grace, we're justified by grace, they say, now, from that point on, though, I think it's up to me. I think I'm asked to kind of be like the hamster on the treadmill, you know, work, 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 you know, do all these good things, keep proving to God how good I am, keep running on the treadmill. At home in my study there, I have a a little three or four inch high Energizer bunny. You all know the Energizer bunny from the commercials, the little rabbit that runs, he's bright pink, the one I have, and he runs around with his battery, keeps going when everybody else has stopped. And there are people that think, I've got to be the Energizer bunny, to show God I'm really a Christian. I'll work, work, work. Well, is that what we're taught? Or aren't we really taught that our justification is by grace through faith and our sanctification day by day throughout every year of our life is grace through faith as we trust what God is doing and enabling in us? It's not all our work at all. We don't keep ourselves in Christ. If you think that, you're going to condemn yourself to a life of futility and and unnecessary guilt with the constant failures that you'll have. God's redemption for your sin, his forgiveness and the possession of the righteousness of Christ is something that is in a believer. The Holy Spirit inhabits us, gives us that new mind, gives us new power, makes us a new creation. Now we take hold of that and we apply it knowing that we're in a race, we're in a battle. All these things Paul elsewhere says, you know, run the race faithfully. Fight the fight with the weapons that God provides. Energy is needed. But here's how someone has said it, and I think it's real helpful. We as believers are to work as if it all depended on us. But at the end of the day, we rest and depend on the fact that it's all in God's faithful and strong hands. And we approach it all, as I don't want to miss the little phrase that at the end of verse 12, with fear and trembling. Why is that there? Well, again, just look back at the preceding verses, this tremendous work that God has done in Jesus Christ coming for us. Aren't you filled with awe? Aren't you amazed? You know, can you sing amazing grace in a blasé? Amazing grace, how sweet does Uh, I'm not saying anybody sang it that way today, but amazing grace. I'm astonished at what God does. It fills me with awe and wonderment that he did this for me. And so as I respond day by day, trusting him, following his commands, taking hold of, of what he teaches me, I do it in a sense of fear and trembling. That's not terror kind of fear. That's that reverential awe. Why would this God do this great thing for me? I want to close with a few quick applications of this text. I've already applied it in some ways, but a few other things. 
One is this. I believe Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is a master key because it teaches us to have a balanced Christian life. There's, there's two big errors you can make to get you out of balance on these things. The one would be what we might call the extreme Arminian or Pelagian viewpoint where you were trusting entirely in your efforts for the Lord, and that so easily falls off the edge into legalism, where you set up a code like the Pharisees did and think, I'll just carry my code, code book with me, and as long as I'm not doing this and I am doing this, I'm okay. And I grew up in that culture, and so did some of you. And, uh, you know, we, we really kind of knew right away when somebody had stepped off the code. Oh, my goodness, in my church, in my youth, anybody who smoked, forget it. You had violated the code. Anybody who had a, a bottle of beer in their refrigerator at home, oh, my goodness, you were off the scale. Our code didn't accept that. Well, it's, it's just too easy to do it that way, to set up our rules and say, if I keep these, I'm, I'm right. That's an unbalanced way of thinking. But, you see, there's a, a sort of a hyper-Calvinist way of, of going off the scale on the other side, and that is when you say, well, I'm at liberty, I'm free to do anything, and it doesn't matter how I live, and I can cuss like a sailor or do whatever, and, and I'm a, I stand in Christ, so I just depend on Him. It doesn't matter how I live. And that extreme version of liberty is just as twisted and just as unbalanced. You can't defend it from Philippians. Notice how Philippians 1.6, by the way, fits into all this. This, is, this letter is a whole, and Paul had a whole theme in mind as he wrote. He said, he who began what a good work in you is going to carry that work to completion in the day of Christ. And he'll give you balance in understanding that he has provided first and all you do is respond in faith. Another application of it is this, that the people who most passionately believe in putting the priority upon the grace of God and the initiative of God quite often are those who are most committed to exerting themselves to work for the kingdom. You see, there's an, there's an accusation that comes against Calvinists or, or Reformed people all the time. They say, oh, you people are just fatalists. You just think God's going to do everything, so why, why should we do anything? Why should we pray? God's going to save people anyway. You don't have to pray. Why should we send missionaries? God's going to save who he wants to save. It's all fatalistic. No, 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 no. It's not. God, who has determined the ends of all things, has equally determined the means, the secondary ways in which all those things would be accomplished. And those secondary ways include preachers preaching and missionaries going out and starting churches and you praying for your relatives. How would that affect the eternal ends of God? I can't answer that, but God says it does. He's ordained all that, and so those who, who put the most glory to God in the Reformed faith are often the leaders out there energetically in the mission field. There's a seminary in the United States. It's a seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. I won't name names, but it belongs to the Southern Baptist Convention. It has a primarily, predominantly Calvinistic direction to its faculty and its president and everybody else, and, and it's somewhat different from the generally Arminian direction of the rest of the Southern Baptist Church. And folks, folks got very alarmed when they saw this influence capturing the seminary. They said, oh my goodness, who's going to go to the mission field if all these people are Calvinists? 
Guess which seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention is sending the most missionaries to the mission field? The one that belongs to the Calvinists. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a fact. The people who care most about the glory of God work energetically to see the purposes of God worked out in our age and our time, and yet not doing it in our own strength and our own futile planning. Finally, this as an application. The only foundation for Christian assurance to know that our redemption is established. Don't be like me up until the age of 18, always thinking, am I saved? Have I done enough? Have I responded to the right altar call? Am I on fire for Christ? No. Jesus Christ died for me. God has done this great, marvelous, unbelievable work for me. If I embrace it, if I believe it, as the Scripture says, it is He who will bring it to completion from the beginning through the middle to the very end. He works. He performs. How can His plans, which He privileges us to be joined to, possibly fail? They cannot. So, folks, all the tools and the weaponry of our sanctification are there in the storehouse of heaven. We don't fight without weapons. We don't work without tools. We don't wage war against Satan without the power of the Almighty One on our side. We're not left to our own pitiful resources. God has worked. He's working in us. He's drawing us to respond in faith and work as He shows us how to obey and trust Him. Do you see the comprehensive wisdom of these verses? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and act. May you respond to him in obedient faith, with gratitude, with trust, with delight in your souls in this faithful God. Amen. Our Father, thank you for being a father who saved scraps of boards and tools and nails to let us hammer away in your workshop. We are not cabinet makers. We are not master craftsmen. But you want our work. You want our imitation of the things that you have done in us. Thank you for that privilege. We pray, O oh God, that you lead your church with energy, trusting you, following your plans, doing bold things wherever you have worked and gone before. For Jesus' sake, amen.